Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Secret Library Podcast. And I can't believe it. But we are at season nine. Welcome back. My guest this week is Jennifer Herrera. She is a former philosophy grad student turned literary agent who's fascinated by the stories we tell ourselves to live and the lies we cling to that sabotage our chances at a good life. She's lived in six states and five countries so far, and now resides in Philadelphia with her husband, daughter, and cat. She's also the author of The Hunter, which came out with Penguin earlier in 2023. And you can hear an interview with her on omurder.com talking about the process of writing that book. Jennifer's come on to The Secret Library today to talk really in depth about the state of publishing, traditional publishing that is, at the moment. Being both an agent in the nonfiction area as well as a published fiction author, working on her second novel currently, Jenny is like a spy into the world of publishing for us. And she shared really candidly about what's happening now, ways we can encounter traditional publishing and work towards that goal, if that's what we wish for as authors, with an understanding of the current reality of what that world looks like. This is essential listening for anyone considering traditional publishing at the moment. And yet it still manages to be a super fun conversation. Jenny is a total delight. I adored interviewing her for Oh Murder and was looking for any excuse to have her back. So I'm very, very happy to have her on The Secret Library and am delighted to share this conversation with you. Enjoy. Hey, Jenny. Thank you hey. so much for coming Good to on. see you again. Yeah, it's good to see you too. I really wanted your sort of general take, not that you have to sum that up in one sentence, obviously. But <laughs> this season, since we're looking at, you know, what is it like to interact with publishing in all of its various forms at this particular point in time? I, I wanted to talk to you because you're both a novelist as well as a nonfiction agent and you have your you have connection in all of these areas. And I just wanted to know how is it feeling when I say the word publishing uh, at the moment? Like what, what <laughs> I have so you many all feelings. Didn't see her face, but it was there was a big like the eyebrows went up. That's all I'll say. Yes. Yeah. So imagine me, my author photo and just lift the eyebrows and that <laughs> will give you a perfect image of what this what experience has been like. Publishing is bananas right now. Um, so for people who maybe don't know, Penguin Random House tried to acquire Simon Schuster and that was unsuccessful. And when that was unsuccessful, they lost a ton of money. And so what happened is all of the sort of top brass left um, for whatever reason. And then they had shakeups throughout the entire building. And so part of this was there was a rumor going around, um, which turned out not to be quite true, but almost true, which is that every imprint had to choose like um, like a tribute, had to like let go of one person. That turned out not to be true but it was very close to being true. There were wow. certain imprints that supposedly didn't lose anybody because um, some of the, 
you know, the editors who had been there for longer, they, um, they took buyouts. And so maybe, you know, maybe their numbers looked okay, but a lot of people lost a lot of really top editors. And so you have, first off, you have a ton of, you know, people, authors who've been orphaned, sort of just what we say when you lose your editor, you've been orphaned and then you're reassigned to somebody else. And that sucks for many reasons. One of which is like the person who acquires your book has, you know, been the advocate for your work. And all of a sudden they're out of house. All of a sudden somebody is basically just like assigned to you or you are assigned to somebody. And then, you know, you don't have a relationship with them yet. You have to figure that out and you have to like find their enthusiasm again. Um, so that really sucks. And then another thing that happened is because a lot of, you know, those bigger editors are gone, it's harder for, I think, new authors to break into the industry because all of those older editors had, you know, a ton of older agents who submitted to them, older agents who had, you know, these big name authors. And now because um, all of that is being inherited. That means all the bigger agents are submitting to lower levels of editors. Um, and so those people are getting more and more submissions and it's harder to like break, break through because right, if you're competing with somebody who has sold a hundred thousand books in hardcover, um, and you're a brand new author, like you have to work really, really hard to get that editor's attention. So supposedly they're going to do more hires, um, you know, things are going to shake out like that. But we've seen a lot of layoffs throughout the industry. We've seen, um, you know, just a shift in how how companies are thinking about new talent. And I think that that um, just makes it harder to, you know, to be a debut author these days. So it reminds me of when I was still in LA and I think this is still obviously happening a lot in entertainment, but there was this shift in entertainment to making sequels or remakes. Mm -hmm. And it, it was no longer feeling like a venue for screenwriters to bring new stories to life. Obviously no stories are, are happening right now because of the writer's strike, but it's, it's that they want this sure thing. There's this idea that you want a sure thing because everyone is scared mm -hmm. about the financial side of things. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yet, I don't know that any of us know what a sure thing is, do we? <laughs> no, no. So that's the that's the thing, right? They want the belief in a sure thing, um, even if they can't have the sure thing themselves. And so that's why sometimes you'll see these flashy debuts that'll sell for like seven figures and they'll sell film rights at the same time. And it'll be a huge deal because it, it almost has like this, like this patina around it, like this sense of, of like awe and wonder. Everybody just kind of like congregates because they get the sense of this is the sure thing. This is the next big thing. This is somebody who's going to make us money for years and years and years. Um, but a lot of times those books don't work either. And so it's, you know, it's how do you trick the publishing industry into thinking that you are a sure thing as an author? I don't know. How do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's tricky and it changes all the time. Um, and that's, you know, as we're seeing a lot of, and this has been the case for a while, but a lot of sure things happen if you, if you get chosen as like a celebrity book club pick. Um, if you get book of the month club, um, that still moves a ton of copies because a ton of people don't buy books at bookstores. It's too much choice. It's too many options. It's too confusing. Um, and so they like having, you know, four books they can choose from a month or whatever it is, and then getting one mailed to them for half the price. So that's really appealing for a lot of people. But so what's happening is I think, and you pointed out something that's similar to the film and TV business um, or the film, the film industry in particular, where it's, you saw a bifurcation years ago, um, where you're not really making as many, um, as many like in between films, you're seeing the money makers, the ones that are the Marvel movies or the sequels or the whatevers. And then you're seeing the ones, um, the artsy, you know, low budget films to make the talent happy. Um, and there's a sense of either you have to choose between making money or you have to choose between some artistic expression and the two, like all that overlap that used to be in the middle, like it doesn't, 
there's no space for it in the industry anymore because of how that industry works. And my fear is that the same thing is happening in publishing. In that you either have your Stephen King books mm-hmm. or you have, what would be the tiny low budget equivalent in publishing? Is that <laughs> like, I know I'm like, what is that? Is yeah. that, you know, really small presses? Yeah, I think it's probably smaller presses or just, um, you know, advanced levels. So you can sort of divide it between advanced levels. So where um, you have a book at a major publishing house, but they paid not very much money for it. And it's sort of a literary book or a quieter book or something like that, where you get the sense of, you know, they didn't invest a ton of money in this. And so they're not going to put a lot of money into it to see if it works. And sometimes those books do really well anyway. Um, You know, I think the Crawdads book from way back when sold, you know, ridiculous number of copies. I don't think they paid a lot of money for that. I don't know how much they paid, but I, I think that it was one of those smaller books that then sort of, I think because of Reese and because of lots of other things um, became a bigger book. But so that's what I mean. Like you have like the tiny advances and you have the monster advances and all of that in-between space where it used to be the case that authors could, you know, get that mid-level advance and sort of eke out a living like that has kind of disappeared. And maybe it'll be back. But right now, especially with um, like the consolidation of the publishing industry, it's just it's becoming harder and more profit-driven. Definitely. So how was this for you as, I mean, you have the insight of an agent. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know how to put this without making you sound like some kind <laughs> of hybrid, Go on. hybrid superhero. Go on. <laughs> I know, it's like all of the, all of the insight of an agent <laughs> with the power of a novelist. It's just... <laughs> Can you please say that actually for like my, my voicemail message? Oh yeah. <laughs> I would love that so much. People would be so confused. They'll be like, I you have Sam. reached Jennifer Herrera. She has all the power. <laughs> and then just stop there. All the power. And that leave all the power. Beep. People would be like, uh, <laughs> I think it's been challenging in the sense of, you know, I knew for instance, when my book didn't get chosen for one of the big book clubs, um, and the book is The Hunter. Um, it came out in January. I knew when my book didn't get chosen for one of those big book clubs that it was something where it's like, okay, so now it's going to be, um, you know, a tiny or a thousand tiny things that we're going to build up to to make something here, because I knew that you had to work so much harder to get attention if you don't get like book of the month club. Um, celebrity book clubs or like a Costco buy, things like that. They used to do pennies picks. So anything that's moving a ton of copies, it takes forever to get attention. But, you know, in some ways that was really empowering for me because I knew that I could do stuff. I could do, and it would be exhausting and I would be moving all the time and I would be, um, you know, talking to lots of people. But at the same time, like that word of mouth appeal can really over time build up so that you're finding your readers. You know, Stephen King wasn't always Stephen King. Um, right. There was a time in which these people were new and they had to work at it too. And so then you can kind of focus less on even the individual book and focus on the long game. Like what are the relationships I'm building? Um, talking to booksellers has been great. So if you're a debut author, going into bookstores, talking to them about your book, signing copies. We have a a phrase in the industry called a signed copy is a sold copy. Yeah. Cause (laughs) you can't remainder it. Yeah. You cannot return a sneak into the bookstore and sign copies. Even if no one asks you to (laughs) get your Sharpies out, everybody. It's like one of those secrets where it's like, if you sign a case of books, that's the same thing as selling a case of books. Well done, you. Um, so there are lots of things like that where you can build over time and you can really be proactive and remember that like, this is your book. Like it is such a cool thing that somebody invested a ton of money in like editors and copy editors and a cover designer, um, somebody to typeset the book. Like all of that came together for you. And now you get to go around telling people about your amazing book. Like it's such a cool experience. It is. And I, I want to like rewind 
So for those who haven't gotten someone to invest yet, I'm just curious about thoughts on that landscape now, because it's like, we've laid out the reality. If you've snuck Mm -hmm. through, then there are things you can do to deal with it. But if you're trying to get in the door, Mm -hmm. what does that look like now? Or what, what advice would you give to someone trying to do that? One is I think to find like the, this is, you know, horrible advice, but the perfect advice is like, find yourself a really great agent. Um, Because one of the things too, is that, you know, editors are getting inundated with submissions, right? There are fewer editors than there used to be fewer higher level editors um, because a lot of them were let go. And so that means that, you know, somebody who's like a mid-level editor or, you know, a little lower is getting a ton of submissions. And so they're prioritizing those submissions based on their relationships with agents. And so if you find an agent who's sold to editors, whose books you like, and you can find all of this by looking at Publishers Marketplace or looking in the acknowledgements, then you're finding somebody who has a relationship with these editors you want to have a relationship with. And that means they're going to take your submission more seriously. Um, And another thing you can do to sort of, um, you know, outside of finding a great agent and you want to have an agent who, you know, you're looking at Publishers Marketplace, you're seeing what they're doing, um, is writing a book that feels like a sure thing, right? We know that people are risk averse right now. So that means trying to give them something that feels really, really new and nobody's ever done this before. Like that is not a compelling argument to them at this time when they aren't willing to take a lot of risks. And so really positioning whatever you're working on, finding those comp titles that are so current and they're selling so well um, that it feels like a sure thing to invest in your book, which is so, so similar to whatever other book is selling really well right now. Um, and then I think one of the other things you can do is be really open about what the process looks like for you right now. So one of the conversations I've been having with a lot of people recently is about whether or not publishers should publish as much in hardcover as they do. And in mm. what cases it makes sense to publish in hardcover versus in paperback. And, um, you know, and the question is like, do readers of certain genres Um, do they really want to spend $30 for a hardcover book? Do they want to carry around a $30 book, like a hardcover book? Um, And one of the questions is like, we've seen in rom-coms a lot where people are buying books and they're paperback originals, right? Because that's what, that's what people would like to read. They don't, they don't want to have like that big, like chunk of a book when they're going on their train in the morning. They want something that they can slip into like a coat pocket. And so really being open about the possibilities for your book as you move forward, I think is another thing that people can do is they're kind of like navigating this new world as a new author. Definitely. I think, yeah, this has been an interesting phenomenon living in a country, Germany, which most of you listening know, that English is not the first language here. It's not even an official language in Germany. And so I have had the unusual experience of being able to get 98% of my first run books that I buy in like a larger paperback format rather than Mm -hmm. a case bound hardback, because that's how they do international editions in English. The German translation will be in hardback of whatever it was. And the only people who get hardbacks in English here are people like Margaret Atwood. Mm -hmm. And actually I kind of, I was kind of a little bitchy with them. (laughs) I was like, what is this? I don't want this giant hardback of the, and she said, it's Margaret Atwood. What do you want? Like, of course she gets the hardback. Um, But I'm so spoiled in that I for all the reasons you just described, it just makes more sense for me to read in paperback. And the only ones I'll get in hardback are the ones that are so gorgeous. I just slobber Mm -hmm. all over them. And then I'm (laughs) required to buy them because they're ruined or Uh um, it's an art book or something along those lines. Yeah. Or something like something where you would want, yeah, like the collector's edition or something like that. So there's like that like big fancy book and then there's a paperback. And I think maybe you know, as a generation, we're less precious about our books in that way. Like 
you know, 90% of my books I, that I read, like I enjoy them, but do I necessarily need to have them on my shelf for the next 40 years? I do not. Um, and so that kind of that feeling of, um, you know, it, a book experience being ephemeral and then we want to move on and, and move away from that book. Like, I think that's something that maybe is new. And so I think, you know, hopefully what we're seeing in publishers too, is that, you know, as the, as the cost of printing are going up as well, that maybe they're looking to see in what cases it makes more sense to, you know, to give people what they want from the get-go, which is paperbacks. That is a really interesting point. I hadn't thought, I hadn't thought about that, but I did, I did hear something from a friend who was, is working on a book. It's out for submission and had gotten a pointer from an editor who was potentially interested in it about restructuring slightly. And the response from this particular writer was, well, that might shorten it slightly. There some of, you know, I can see where that would work, just reordering it, mm -hmm. but it might change the length of the book slightly. And the response was, oh, good, because paper's really expensive. <laughs> and I was just yeah. like, it was all of our reaction yeah. and hearing this story was like, oh God, it's like a knife in my heart that, but I also think it's like both sides of this have to be part of the, the thinking is on the one hand, we want to think, okay, the story is going to be given as much space and as many mm -hmm. pages and as many paragraphs mm -hmm. and sentences as it needs to be told in the best possible way. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, publishing is still existing inside of a capitalist system that has to pay bills and keep lights mm -hmm. on. And that's all true also. Yes. And I think one of the things people bring up to me, sorry, I'm an agent, so I get a lot of queries. And when I see somebody say their book is 120,000 words, like I just kind of like tune it out a little bit. Um, and I, I read the query, but oftentimes I'm already like, they're already a dis at a disadvantage because I'm like very worried. I was like, oh, 120,000 because it's such well, especially a because you're a nonfiction agent. I think oh, it's important yeah. to say as well, like 120 mm -hmm. for a fantasy novel. Okay. But yes. 120 for a how-to book, that is a very different. Yes. But of. I do think you have to keep in mind binding costs. So if you get past a certain threshold of a number of pages, then they have to use a different kind of binding, which is much more expensive. And so oh, longer books actually um, can be very, very expensive to make. So what's the, what's the line? I don't actually remember anymore, but I can, I can um, look it up or I can talk to some people and find out, but it's like, that's why like really big books can be a tough sell because they're more expensive to make. So, so your uh oh line is like, what, like 90 K? Oh no, no. It's like, it's, you know, substantially over a hundred. Okay. Um, you know, even like a hundred, I'm usually fine with, but it's when you start getting to like 120, 130, 140, where I get like a little concerned. Um, because I think one, like, you know, I don't represent a lot of fantasy at all. I don't represent that be fantasy. And so there's no world building that needs to happen. Um, and so a lot of times it's like, can you write to the market we're in now? And the market we're in now um, does not always support extremely long books because they take a long time to read. Um, you know, if it's if it's a big biography or something, obviously that's different, but um, it's the expense. Everything has gotten so much more expensive. Oh, that's heartbreaking. But also, I have to admit that like my attention span is more easily compromised now also. Yes, yes, <laughs> it is. That is a very polite way of putting it. Yes, my <laughs> attention span is very easily compromised. In some ways, I think the publishing industry really benefits from this because oftentimes if I have a book that I'm loving, I'll buy it in hardcover, ebook and audio because like I'm so fragmented that sometimes like I have insomnia and I'm reading on my phone in the middle of the night and I need the ebook. And oh, sometimes yeah. like I'm, you know, going for a walk or have a, you know, driving and I'm listening to the audiobook, And then, you know, on those few precious times when I 
can sit down with a cup of tea and a blanket and watch you know the fall leaves out the window. Um, again, this is my fantasy world where it is right. fall. Uh, Forever. Then I'm reading the hardcover. Yes. Yeah. When you're in the castle in Ireland, <laughs> you know, in your in yeah. your cable knit sweater. <sighs> Please. Oh, it's so great. It. Writing a treat. Writing yeah, a treat. Immediately. <laughs> um, yeah, all of those things I think are are true. I am I had a book and I had finished the book. Let's be clear. It was Carry On by Rainbow Rowell and that whole series. Oh, yeah. And I, for whatever reason, I I mean it's a it's really well done, but it also it just scratched some itch where it was like my blankie and I needed to like <laughs> I had all the hardcovers, but then I was like, I need the audio as well. And then I was going <laughs> on a trip and I had to have an actual serious like heart to heart with my husband about whether or not I needed to have them in ebook in case like I needed to just have them. And he was like, okay, well why don't we go without the ebooks because you have the capacity to buy them if the situation <laughs> requires it um but let's such a reasonable thing to say I know how did you do did you buy them I I did okay I don't have them okay okay but now that we're having this conversation I'm like I kind of I kind of want I kind of want them (laughs) because I'm always lending them out and then I'm like what do I do yeah yeah it's ridiculous so yeah that is a much bigger investment it's like we're willing to go deeper with one book rather than wider with many books Mm, mm. that's an excellent way of putting it yeah I think that's true I mean that's certainly true of my personal reading habits yep I mean I still read a lot Mm -hmm. because I still sleep badly and I still love reading (laughs) so all of these things the fragmented attention has not changed the bad sleeping and the need for lots of reading to deal with that but yeah, it's just this, it, it feels like the world is risk averse and that that's playing out in a particular way with publishing. Yeah, I think that that's an excellent way of putting it. Um, and especially, you know, you look at the publishing industry 20, 30 years ago. Um, I was not in publishing at the time, but you know, what I hear is that all of these imprints within houses were different houses entirely. And so when you had different houses competing against each other that weren't all controlled by the, like the dominant, um, you know, like force at the the top of the industry, then, then you could have uh, a wider variety of what gets published. You know, you didn't have um, this sense of like what, you know, what Penguin Random House is doing or what Simon & Schuster is doing or what HarperCollins is doing. You could have um, more diversity within, I think, the landscape or at least the opportunity for that. Um, whereas where we're at right now, um, you know, everybody's just trying to make money and everybody's trying to bet on the sure thing and they're not taking as many risks as they used to. I think. Yeah, it's it feels... Like when I hear also about publishing outside of the US and the UK, because I feel like the US and the UK are quite similar. There's strong relationships between the houses and so on. But when I hear about Canada, for example, and even non-English markets, like I know a little bit about Germany and Austria, that it is still a much smaller press world, particularly in Canada where you don't even need an agent. Oh yeah, I believe it. And I think then the question is like, how many copies are they moving for some of these places? Yeah, true. Because it's like, you can, you can, you can live in the small press world in the US. There are a ton of small presses um, and some of them are really great, but it's like, what's their distribution? What, you know, what kind of support are they going to give you around publication? How, how much leverage are they going to have to get you coverage in the times or coverage in places that we know moves the needle? And, and I don't know, I don't know that, that, you know, that the answer to those questions is going to satisfy somebody who's a new author who wants to still like nurture this ambition that their book could make it big. Yeah, exactly. I think it's also a question of what is your goal as a writer mm-hmm. in putting a book out yeah. in the world mm-hmm. and is you know making it big and 
being the next, I don't know who I would, you would know the name better than me, <laughs> but like, you know, writing the next where the crawdads sing or something right. that everybody knows the name Fourth of. Fourth wing right now. Is the yeah. There's just, I mean, perpetually there's, there's always this, which one is the it book of the season and is being the it book. Cause it is for a season. It doesn't last forever. Yeah. Um, but is being that it book, the only marker of success and is, is, are there other things that would feel satisfying and meaningful mm -hmm. that could be accomplished maybe without that particular goal? And I think that that is an excellent question that, that, um, it's hard to ask yourself, but once you do, you, um, like, it's almost a relief because you realize that like, I, most people I don't think actually want I mean, it would be nice. I think I was just listening to a podcast where you, you were talking about nice to have versus like need to have, Yeah, you know, when it came to all of the flashy awards and, you know, bestsellers list and that sort of thing where it's like, you know, in some sense it might be nice to have, but I don't think that it's the goal because if it were, then like the people on top would be happier. Like I, I still remember reading, um, you know, Andrew Solomon's A Noonday Demon back in the day, which is a book about his depression. Right. And it said um, that when he published his first novel, which, you know, I got the impression was like a big deal with the publishing company um, and that it was, you know, a big five or whatever it was back then, that it was like af the aftermath of that was like the worst period of his life because he had all of these expectations for what would happen as soon as he got the big book deal. And then he had the deal and he still wasn't happy. And so he was, he was sort of like lost because he felt like, oh, how do I, like, where's hope? How do I find hope when the one thing I was like yearning for, thinking it would change everything, didn't bring me what I wanted. And one of the benefits I have as somebody who works with a lot of authors who've been really successful is that I know that just because you're number one New York Times bestseller, just because, you know, you're the it author of a period of time, just because you have all of these accolades, it doesn't actually change your life in the way that you want it to. It's not like your interior life. Um, it may change your financial situation. And that's obviously a really big deal. But, but oftentimes I think what people actually want out of writing is something very different from what the publishing industry offers. Yes. Oh, I could, I could have a happy dance with that whole thing that you, <laughs> you just can, said. You can, you can. I can, I can. I know it's true. No one will see it, but just know that it's happening, everyone. Because yes, I think that, oh, do you know what it makes me think of? This is such a ridiculous reference, but it comes up all the time in my house. Do you remember... Adam Sandler, this is, you're going to be like, what? Yeah, the eyebrows are up, everybody. They're up. <laughs> Adam Sandler did this thing for SNL and it was an advertisement. It was like a faux ad for a travel agency called Romano Tours. And it, it was, they clearly consulted an actual psychotherapist because with the training I have, a friend of mine who's also, um, she's a neuroscientist, but she's done that all that training. Also, we just died laughing at this because he's basically like, I can take you on a trip to Italy. I can show you beautiful sights. Cause he's doing this like long Island accent. He's like, but if you're sad home, you might still be sad here. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if you don't, if you know, if you don't like being in photographs, the pictures that you take on this trip will have you in them, you know? So it's like, and then there's this thing at the bottom of the screen that the hashtag that just says same sad you it's like, and he just says like, here's what our tours can do and what they can't do. It's like, I can take you on a zip line trip. I cannot make you say wee and mean it. And it just goes on and on. <laughs> but I feel like there is a little bit of this same energy mm -hmm. in if I publish this book, I will be a completely different person. And maybe this is a total buzzkill. 
to those listening, but I think it's better that you know now that like the same Mm -hmm. sad you thing applies to publishing. So it's better to know what do I love so much about writing books and working on this that publishing with a big five publisher and being the it author and getting a whatever million dollar movie deal is beside the point. And I think that that's easier to answer before all of that stuff happens. Like, cause, cause otherwise, I mean, you'll always have the expectation no matter where you're at. You're always going to have the expectation that like, you know, when the movie comes out or when, you know, such and such happens, then when we get like, awards you, for the movie, <laughs> when we get, the, you know, all of this stuff, and then we get a sequel and then we, it's just going to go on and on and on forever. Mm-hmm. But like, if you can, if you can sort of like script ahead of times, so like, I guess right in therapy, they talk about scripts a lot, right? Like have yeah. a script ready for yourself when that happens. Um, just to remind yourself that like, no, this is it. Like you're doing it. You're doing the thing that you wanted to do. And this is, this is what you've signed up for like today, like sitting in front of your computer or in front of your notebook and like making a world. That's the whole thing. That's it. And if you love it, then keep doing it. Exactly. Cause I think that the, the first thing that tends to happen is like when people get into, and I've been guilty of this as well. So I can't act like it doesn't happen for me of like writing in the book and then getting distracted by, but what's going to happen with this book, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. rather, and then, mm-hmm. and then leaping ahead to like, when is this going to be in people's hands? How is it going to get in there? What's the cover going to look like, you know, and just obsessing about things that make no sense uh, yet, because there is no chance of those things happening until the book is finished. And I want you to know, like when I was writing The Hunter, I remember like vividly, I would like be answering interview questions with myself in my head. Like I would just like stop writing and just being like, oh, when somebody asks me about this motif, I'm going to (laughs) say, can I just say how many times people have asked me, first off, the specific questions I prepared for when writing. And second, like, I don't even remember what I said. Like it was just a way to like connect to a fantasy of, of like something better better than the now. Like one of the things that I think is really interesting because I work in nonfiction is sometimes people will send me full manuscripts and ask me to try to sell their full nonfiction manuscript. And like I always say query. uh to publishing houses. Because no, but I in, mean, are you working with them as an agent? Oh yet? yeah, yeah, yeah. As a I thought as like yeah, a, as exactly. a query, they're like, here you go, sell this. Yeah, puppy. here's the whole thing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh or even like I'll ask, you know, an author for revisions on their proposal and they'll write the full book and I'll be like, I can't sell the full book. And they sometimes get very concerned about this. They say like, why can't you sell a full manuscript? Isn't it better that they know I've already finished it? And I have the same response every time, which is the promise of the thing is always better than the thing itself. So like, if you want, Uh, and for nonfiction, it's like, if you want that big flashy advance and you want like, you know, all of the attention from all these publishers, you're selling them on the promise, not like the thing that comes after the promise, which is kind of a tough pill to swallow. But I think a lot. It's like a striptease. (laughs) A burlesque, really. Yeah, a burlesque more than a full on. (laughs) Maybe you take off a glove. (laughs) It's like Gypsy Rose Lee kind of. <laughs> I love this. I love the vividness which you've like acclimated to this description. Well, it's true though, but it's, it uh, I think, but this is true, not just for the publishing house, but let's face it. It's true for us as the writers yeah. ourselves. Like think about when you first had the idea for the hunter mm-hmm. or anything else, you know, it's Ugh. like you have the idea and then we have to then make it into something mm-hmm. that we hope captures all of the energy of that initial idea. And it's really uh-huh. hard. I had this. So I have the second book um, is due to my publisher in a couple of months. And I finished the first draft, you know, with, with an eye toward revising. I'm going to revise a bunch before I send it to my editor. Um, and I just did the first read through of the first draft. And can I tell you, I cried. 
because I was like, this is so bad. This is, I was like, I'm going to give all the money back. This is the worst thing I've ever read. I can't believe I thought I would like send. And then I had to like take a step back. And my husband was like, like, we've had these same conversations before. He's like, you don't know it, but we have these same conversations all the time because it's like, you have a thing in your head and you have like your first pass at trying to get it there. And this like, you know, this delusion we live under when we're writing, which is that everything is perfect. And then you go to read it and it's not all perfect. And so you have to like live with the conflict of that and then have this sort of like trust and faith and belief in yourself that you, if you work at it, you can get it to the place that where it, where it like connects so closely with the fantasy. Yeah. It's, and and why is it? I don't know why this is, but it seems universal as well that I suspect, I mean, based on patterns and how many conversations I've had with people and what you just said about your husband, that you had that process with the hunter also. It's just that because it worked out, it's like the early phase (laughs) is completely erased. And it's like, oh no, that book was like sprung from my head, complete like Athena out of Zeus's brain. (laughs) And there was none of this doubt and it just worked out. And because it's not happening that way, this time I've lost it and there's no way this is going to work. That's right. I I did an event with um, Karen Slaughter uh, a few weeks ago, which was very cool. Cause she like blurbed my book and it was like, it was like a big deal. And at one point I was like, uh, Karen, like, does it get any easier? Uh, and you know, she's written a ridiculous number of books, like 20 bestsellers or something like that. Um, and she was like, no, like not even like, didn't even hesitate. She was like, no, it never gets easier. She said, uh, writing is an exercise in self-doubt and we keep doing it because we love it. And it was like, oh, mic dropped. Uh, Yeah. So it's like, but we, you know, we have this fantasy that it was once easy and we, we keep like cycling back into that because you need that. You need to like, um, like not remember all of the like gritty details or you'll never do it again. It was like when I, I had a baby for the first time and I just remember like sobbing at my mom, like three days postpartum being like, mom, how did you do this three times? And she just looked at me because it was so terrible. Like all the aftermath, she's like, honey, you forget. Um, And she was right. And I feel like the same thing is true of writing. It's like, you just, you forget. And then when it's, then when it's hard, you forget that it used to be hard and that you got over it once. And so I think the trick probably is to just, um, I don't know. I don't know the trick. Just kidding. (laughs) I mean, I think the trick is to, at least for me, is to Mm. keep some track of the process. Oh, yes. That's the trick. You're right. You found the trick. Just, yeah. Mm -hmm. And just say, okay. It was never like this before, but then I've even, I have students and clients who have with my wheedling and annoying returning to the same suggestion, kept process journals about their writing and have Mm. said with some seriousness, I did not write this. Somebody has been in here and copied my handwriting. (laughs) I mean, they're joking. But they're like, I have no memory of this whatsoever. These notes, I don't, this is clearly not what happened. It's <laughs> so funny. And I'm, and they're like, I know this is ridiculous. I know it was me, but I just can't believe it. I feel so separate from it having felt this way at wow. one point. Do you think it's just like evolution did that to us? Like it, like there in would order be no to... books otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like with all like, you know, difficult life experiences in order to maintain like optimism and hope and, and sort of a desire to continue. You have to like almost lie to yourself about the past. Yeah. Or that there's this, this delusion that we operate under. And I definitely am under it where it's like, if I just fill in the blank, then Mm. it will be easier which mm-hmm. might involve a different notebook, a different time of day, mm-hmm. in a different location, a different app, a different <laughs> pen, who knows? Like if uh-huh. I just do these, the protein powder, who knows? There's a lot of uh-huh. things that you get sucked into and then, then it'll be so much easier. But yeah. I think that the point isn't for it to be easy because if it was so easy, I don't think any of us mm-hmm. who are writers would want to do it. Yeah. 
if it was like, we, we can whip it out like a color by number, I think we would get bored and we wouldn't want to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the question is what about like it being difficult is the thing that like brings us some sort of fulfillment or connection or meaning. Like, why is that connected to difficulty? I don't know, but I, I do think it's maybe the same impulse that means we don't like reading books about people having completely bland lives, no conflict, who have it really easy to get what they want. Mm -hmm. These situations don't interest us at all. And I Mm -hmm. wonder if, I wonder if we're hardwired for this because there's so many points in life that are not easy. And Mm -hmm. I don't know how else we could do it. Mm -hmm. because it's like the things that are not easy you know historically like draw the most attention or their most resources and so they can become obsessions I guess it's the same reason people like compete in these like horrible sounding races with like bicycles and (laughs) bathing suits and sneakers I don't know they sound terrible right it's like whatever impulse that is I know I live with one of these people (laughs) He rode a thousand kilometers earlier this summer in like a week in the heat in the summer. How many miles is that? It's like 650. Uh, in like five, five or six days. And what do you think like caused him to want to do that? I don't know. We'd have to bring him in here. He's not, <laughs> he's not here at the moment. I I think, but I think it's a, it's like the physical equivalent of writing a book in a way. Yeah. It's like, do I, I mean, it's sort of like the thing that all of us have at the beginning of, of like, do I think I can pull this off? Am I capable of, of getting to the end of this story? It's more like, Mm -hmm. am I physically capable at the end of these thousand kilometers? But we're like, am I emotionally and intellectually capable of Uh taking this spark and putting it in a forum that other people mm-hmm. can experience it too. Mm-hmm. I remember once reading the distinction between like meaning and happiness. And mm. we think what we want out of life is happiness. We think we, everybody just wants to be happy, but what we actually want is meaning and meaning oftentimes like to create meaning, we need to be extremely uncomfortable for long periods of time. And so there's something about that journey that um that draws us to it even though it pulls us farther from that you know happy-go-lucky personal persona I mean how many writers do you know who are happy-go-lucky I'm still trying to think of one (laughs) (laughs) I I was like I mean all the writers I know are wonderful people I love spending time with them but I would not describe any of them as happy-go-lucky uh, zero. Yeah. I'm still at zero. And I know a lot of writers. <laughs> I know at this I'm point, I'm like every zero. single person I've interviewed for eight years. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. I no. mean, funny, definitely, but <laughs> yeah, none. So I guess the, you know, the, um, the goal here is to like, stop focusing so much on comfort and happiness and more on, on the things that, that make us uncomfortable and that make us unhappy because that's where, you know, I think you said in the last episode that I listened to about, um, uh, about material, <laughs> you said that, you know, uh, I love that I'm quoting you to yourself. I know. And this is delightful. <laughs> I'm going to do your voicemail. You're quoting me. I love this. Uh, the sense that like, you don't have bad days. You just have like sources of material. Yeah. In the sense of like, maybe it's not material yet, but there's, but I think like the, the point of that, right. Is that you can always create meaning out of something that went wrong for you. Yeah. That you it's not, it doesn't live in an abyss where it is just absurd and ridiculous and has no point. You can always find something that happened to you and use it to create something that gave it a purpose. Um, even if, even if we never would have wanted that thing to happen to us. I mean, sometimes I find it's the only way to tolerate that thing having happened is to mean, mm-hmm. is to have the experience of it feeling useful. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. otherwise it's just crap. It's just a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So this is why we're writers, actually. <laughs> I think so. I think we've just solved it. Like for everyone <laughs> who is feeling suffering or difficulty about publication, that is yeah. the point. That is the point. Oh, oh, I love how we came full circle. Yes. That is we the found point. The point. So you can be really upset at the state of the publishing industry and think it's going to be so much harder for me to get my debut out there. And even once it's out there, it's going to be hard for it to get attention. And even once I, you know, get that attention, it's going to be hard for me to be happy. But that's the point. Yeah. Because if it was too easy, then we wouldn't care and it wouldn't mean anything. So let's stick with meaning. Solved it. Solved it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I can't think of any better point to end on than that. And Agreed. I'm so, I'm so grateful we got to have this conversation. It's always, always such a treat. Oh, this was so much fun. Thank you for having me. Oh my goodness. Thank you for coming. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Today, we discuss Miro. Today, I want to talk about the hellscape that is technical diagramming, right? Everybody's nodding their heads right now. Uh-huh. And there is a potential solution that I want to share. There was one name that several people brought up. I did some digging, and it's kind of nuts how much this program Miro has for developers. I have to share this. It could potentially be a game changer for you. So my favorite part about Miro is that half the work is already done. Like right now, typically we spend hours starting diagrams from scratch, gathering information. You get buy-in from every team. Uh, you know, that's a lot of work to do. But Miro has a full set of integrations with the tools you're probably already using. And they also offer open APIs and SDKs for custom solutions for all those niche diagramming use cases we have to do, right? So the end result is the same, but it doesn't take forever. It's a massive, massive time saver. I'm transforming basic flowcharts and network architectures, and it all lives in one place. So are you using Miro? Have you used it? I want to hear. That's M-I-R-O dot com.